Hi friends, this is Josh from Narrate. For our Christmas Eve gatherings, Adam reflected on the original Christmas story as told in the Gospel of Matthew. Adam talked about how Jesus was a giver in the way he approached people, and how that contrasted Herod, a taker. Christmas Eve was a precursor for a series titled Give and Take, a conversation on choosing to be a giver or a taker in relationships, starting on January 8th at Narrate. Hey, so as we think about Christmas, what if the real danger on Christmas is our familiarity with the story? Uh, And I don't mean that in kind of a bony finger in your chest, kind of keep Christ in Christmas kind of way. I just mean, like, sincerely, I'm assuming that your being here is some indication that that on some level you'd like God to be a part of your Christmas celebration. And yet, what if one of the things we all have in common, no matter how religious or spiritual you are or aren't, is that all of us are so familiar with the story, you know, the the animals, the the baby, the parents, Herod, the whole deal, that that if we're not careful, we just fly right by by the thing and it doesn't even touch us. Like, what what if familiarity is a real problem? Because if you think about it, it's a problem in lots of other areas, right? Like, isn't it familiarity that can cause an otherwise great marriage to deteriorate? Isn't it familiarity that can case, take a thriving business and bring it to its knees? Isn't it familiarity that can cause a, a leader to take for granted a key staff member or several? Isn't it familiarity that, that, that can ruin a relationship between a parent and a child? Like, familiarity is a danger. What if it's a danger on Christmas? You know, I would say for my part, uh, Christmas... And Easter are two of the most difficult days of the year, uh, for lack of a better term, professionally. And that's not because of this. This is a privilege. This, this is awesome. My job is to not screw this up because so many people work so hard uh, around the scenes. But what I mean by that is the tricky thing about Christmas and Easter is you all show up already knowing the narrative. You know the punchlines. You've heard the story so many times that if, if you're not sleeping already, there's a real risk that you will in the next 10 minutes. And listen, I, I, don't, I, I don't say that in any way to trivialize the importance of those two days. I would align myself with the millions of those who for a couple thousand years have said on Christmas and Easter, we celebrate two of the most important historical days in the history of creation. I mean, if in fact the tomb was empty, if it was way more than a metaphor, if that actually occurred, I, I can't think of two days more important than these two days. But the trick The trick, again, is to somehow provoke ourselves to drive slow enough to pay attention to the story. That was part of the thought behind that newspaper, by the way. It was, uh, if you didn't get one when you came in, you can get one as as you go out. But the thinking was, let's provide something somewhat beautiful and artistic that that maybe you take with you, and and maybe it provokes you to start your Christmas morning uh, in the story. And and it's okay if you don't, but that's the thinking behind that. But what I want to do for the next 20 minutes is ask, ask a question and maybe try to frame this Christmas Eve with this particular question in an effort to slow down and, and maybe see Christmas from a little bit different angle. Remember the Jews, they talked about the text being like a crystal, uh, this beautiful thing that you hold it up into the light and you just turn it one time and you constantly see it differently. What if we talked about Christmas this way? What, what, if, what if Christmas reminds us that, that in this life there are givers and there are takers And each and every one of us, moment by moment, hour by hour, day by day, month by month, are are choosing which ones we will be. Like, what if Christmas reminds us that in the world, in business, in relationship, in family, in friendship, in community, there are givers and takers. And every one of us is somewhere on that continuum. What if Christmas has a way of provoking us to, to look in the mirror and as a spouse, as a parent, as a friend as an employee, as a leader, to to just take a long, hard look and go, okay, so who who am I? 
And how do I relate to the world in which I sit? See, if that's in fact a a comfortable metaphor or even a, a good lens to look through, it strikes me that the Christmas story is full of characters who fall somewhere along that continuum. Like we could start with Jesus. That seems logical enough. Would you agree? He was born to peasant parents. He had zero dignity. Uh, he, he, he was a momzer. That's an offensive Hebrew word. It's an offensive Hebrew word because what momzer means, it's, it's, it is set aside to describe kids who were, who were born to unwed parents. Every culture has a word. They're always shaming. They're always gross. Jesus was a momzer. He was born in a cave, seems most likely. His bed was a feeding trough. His clothes were, were rags. His stable mates or his cave mates, his nursery mates had four legs. He was, he was marked for death. He was raised on the run. Fast forward some three decades and he had even less dignity. Like we're here 2,000 years later and in some sense celebrating him. All of us are different in, in our embracing of that. But let's just be clear. When Jesus' life was over, he had even less dignity when it started. Though he gave his life to people and relationships, though we have no historical structures that he built, he didn't leave the types of monuments that successful people leave. He didn't write the types of books that successful people write. Jesus, Jesus died alone. He was, he was accused. He was condemned. He was convicted. He was beaten. He was bleeding. He was naked. He was completely humiliated, totally shamed, and on the cross, he was alone. Let's just be clear. There, there, was, no, there was no party outside the tomb counting down from 10, you know, like 10, 9, 8, 7. That wasn't happening. When Jesus died, he was a failure. And in fact, there's other characters in the story. There's Herod. And Herod, though we celebrate Jesus today, Herod was the hero in his day. He was the picture of success in his own day. Herod was born of noble birth. He was the leader of armies. By age 33, he was declared the king of the Jews by the Roman Senate. Herod held the title king of the Jews. He functioned in that role for 40 years. Now it's hard pressed, I'm hard pressed to think of anybody who's led anything for 40 years, let alone somebody who maintained order, supposedly, in one of the most tumultuous regions of the world the world has ever seen. Herod was incredibly skilled, politically savvy beyond probably any of us could even really appreciate. At one point, uh, Herod, excuse me, at one point, Mark Antony wanted power. He wanted to become the next Caesar. He was a very powerful Roman person. He he positioned for power. He was going to overthrow Caesar Augustus. Herod publicly aligned himself with Caesar, excuse me, with Mark Antony. Caesar Augustus ultimately won. He defeated what became his mortal enemy, Mark Antony. And after Caesar Augustus retained control of the throne, Herod was so savvy, so persuasive, so powerful, so scary, that he was able to convince Caesar Augustus to retain him as the leader of Israel. Herod, even by today's standards, is one of the greatest builders the world has ever seen, going right, left to right, excuse me, from your perspective on the screen. Israel doesn't have a natural seaport. No problem for Herod, he built one. Herod, 2,100 years ago, was pouring concrete 200 feet below the ocean surface. You can go to Caesarea Philippi today. I've been there. He, he imported so much white marble into that part of, into this port, into this city, to build palaces for himself and his kids. You can walk the beaches of Caesarea Philippi and pick up golf ball-sized pieces of white marble. They're more common than seashells. Herod was a master builder. He, he, he built uh, the Masada. Masada is a, is a natural landform right next to the Dead Sea. It's one of the driest parcels of ground in the entire planet. The Dead Sea is the lowest place on the surface of the earth. It rains nil, like Montana looks tropical. 
Herod built this massive palace on top of Masada, in part because he was paranoid. He had a series of palaces that he would retreat to in the event that someone actually figured out that, that he was kind of conniving and dangerous and not altogether that effective, and at least if it came to humanitarian issues. And so Herod built a series of, of these outposts that he could retreat to and hole up in for years. Hundreds, maybe thousands of people could live in Masada for a for four, five, six years. They don't entirely know, but it would have been a long time. I've stood in one of the cisterns. You could park multiple Greyhound buses inside of them. Herod built the Herodian. That's that mountain-looking palace. Now, the Herodian is to Bethlehem, which Jesus was born where? The Herodian is to Bethlehem what Mount Helena is to us. It sits right in town. Bethlehem and the Herodian are, are visible from Jerusalem. But here's a trivial fact, or maybe not so trivial, about the Herodian. Herod didn't just build the palace, he built the mountain. No, he didn't build anything. That's the way this stuff works, right? But, but he, archaeologists seem to universally or nearly universally agree, that mountain's not natural. He moved it from somebody somewhere else. See, you can see the Herodian from Jerusalem. Some people think that when Jesus said to his guys, his followers, there were women in the crew as well, hey, uh... If you have faith as small as a mustard seed, you could say to this mountain, be cast into the sea, and it would be cast. Some think he was staring at the Herodian. Herod rebuilt the Jewish temple, and that's to be clear. It was very offensive to most Jewish people at this time because he he, he didn't fit. it It wasn't right. But nonetheless, he made it opulent and beautiful, massive, bigger than it had ever been. He he placed stones in place. They're the only thing left today. They're these foundation stones. They're called Herodian stones. Uh, They weigh, some of them, up to 250 tons. Engineers marvel because even today, nobody knows how we got them there. And they're built with such precision that you could go there tomorrow. It would be a long day. You couldn't fit a piece of paper between the two of them. That's how masterfully they are put together. Herod was also quite ruthless. This is how you keep a position like that for 40 years. Herod was married 10 or 11 times. They're, they're not entirely clear. What they are clear on is that he killed more than one of his wives, had, had them executed. In one case, uh, in his own biography, it talks about this fact that he, uh, there was only one of them that he truly loved. And at one point, he suspected that she was positioned. He wasn't sure about her ambition, and so he ordered her executed. We know he killed a couple mothers-in-law, a couple brothers-in-law, some of his sons. See, Herod was a gold medalist in the Olympics. He was a bit of an egotist. He was very sexually involved. We we know that he died of some kind of STI, sexually transmitted illness. We know that that part of his body was covered with worms and maggots over the final months and maybe even years. We know that he had several near-death experiences which create create interesting interactions with the community and, and a public that doesn't necessarily trust or like you. In one instance, there was an uprising celebrating the fact that he was about to die, or at least that was the thought. He rallied, and when he did, he had everybody involved arrested. The ringleaders burned alive publicly, and every person involved executed. In another instance, uh, one of his very sons, his own sons, from from the one wife he truly loved, five days before Herod ultimately did die, he heard that his son was making plans for for Herod's departure. And so he had that son arrested, his head placed in a vice, and slowly closed until he died. Herod knew that Israel would celebrate on his death, and he couldn't stand the thought of that. And so you know what he did? He assembled a list of highly regarded Jewish people, had them held, they were arrested, and then his will stated that upon his death, every one of them ought to be executed, will be executed, for, he said, there will be mourning on the day of my death. Herod was the greatest ruler of Israel Rome ever had. Nobody else was given that title, save for one Jewish 
rabbi for about three hours on a Friday. What if, what if Jesus is a picture of what it means to be a giver? What if Herod was a taker? And what if Christmas is this prompt to look in the mirror and, and pay attention to, to who we are? Listen, you don't drift into being a giver. That's what we all have in common. This isn't like some of us are better people than others. This is like, this is, we're all prone to this, to making life more and more and more about ourselves. And I'd like to say this. I don't find Jesus to be a giver simply because he was poor and, and had nothing. I want to argue that he was a giver if he was because he used what he had to serve others. And I don't find Herod to be a taker simply because he had things and lots of power. No, there's givers who have that as well. He's a taker if he was because he used what he had for himself and to keep it in possession. Now, there's a guy named Adam Grant who's, who's written a book. He's actually a teacher at the University of, like, what do you care? Everyone's written a book. Uh, he, he's a teacher at the University of Pennsylvania, which is, is an Ivy League school. I'm not sure that I could even fill out the application. He's a highly regarded thinker. Uh, this summer and, and fall, I became familiar with his work. See, he did a wealth of information uh, in, in businesses, in med schools, in, in business colleges, where, where he came to the determination with this vast team of thinkers that all of us have a, a natural reciprocal relational style. Now, that's academic talk for all of us in friendship and life and work. We, we, we relate in a certain way. See, what he determined is that all of us are either givers or takers or matchers. Now, what he suggests is, is a matcher is, it's, it's tit for tat. It's quid, quid, quid pro pro quo. It's you scratch my back, I'll scratch yours. It's like, we're, we're going for break even. You treat me away, I'll treat you the same way. Takers, of course, that, that's, that's pretty self-explanatory. Takers are highly competitive people, but let's be clear, not all competitive people are takers. Takers understand that the world is dog-eat-dog, and if you don't get them, they're going to get you. Takers say things like, there's winners and losers, you don't want to be a loser. Takers, they go by logical math. If you get more, I get less. And then there's givers. Givers are a completely different sort. They, they abide by a completely different type of math. Givers, the win for them, and this is part of what we're going to explore in, in January, is they, givers, they, they define wins differently. You know what else they do is they, they talk to people differently. They set up boundaries for their giving differently because let's be honest, you can always give too much in a relationship or anywhere else. Givers stay motivated to give differently. Now, when I first started reading his, his work and under, familiarizing myself with, with his thoughts and his research, to be honest with you, I was depressed. Not clinically, I don't mean to trivialize that either. But it's hard to familiarize yourself with his work without kind of being grossed out by yourself. At least that's what I found. It was hard to look deep into his work and not conclude like, I'm a, I'm a taker. Or, or worse, he actually has a fourth category. It's the most terrifying of all. He calls them fakers. See, fakers are people, they're women and men who understand that giving wins. And so you better at least pose like you are one. Very dark kind of discouraging. And part of it is because, quite frankly, I, I find Adam Grant's work to be very deterministic. Like you are who you are who you are, and you're stuck with it. And that's when everything turned a corner for me. That's where suddenly we went like, wait a minute, this is Christmas. Because Christmas tells a different story. At least that's what I'd like to suggest to you. Christmas reminds us that, that you're, you're not who you are, who you are, who you are. 
that five years from now, you will be an altogether different person than you are today for better and for worse. See, five years from now, Rabbi Daniel Lappin says, a giraffe is a giraffe and an elephant's an elephant, but a human's not a human, or at least in the sense that they're the same thing they were five years ago. Christmas tells a completely different story. It doesn't say that you're born a giver or if you've drifted in that way uh, of a taker, that you're stuck with it. It says, no, 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 this God changes people. And to me, the remarkable thing about the Christmas story is it involves a giving God mentoring people into being giving people. Let's just look back at that somewhat awkward story that we looked at with some babies helping us out. Verse 18, this is how the birth of Jesus the Messiah came about. His mother Mary was pledged to be married to Joseph, but before they came together, she was found to be pregnant through the Holy Spirit. Now, let's just be clear. Uh, before they came together means what you think it means. You, you might not agree with it, uh, but for whatever sake, just to be honest with the text, these are people who believe that sexuality was, was reserved for, for marriage at this point, for a covenant. But the bigger picture here, in my view, is, is the way it all goes down. See, long before Joseph has a moment with an angel, Mary had her own. And when she found out she was pregnant, it would seem, according to Luke, that she didn't run to Joseph and inform him. How could she? No, she ran to a friend and relative's house and celebrated with her. And when she arrived at her house in a different town altogether, it turns out that this friend, this relative, was also pregnant. And it was miraculous in its own right because her and her husband were pretty old and they hadn't been able to have kids. And suddenly she was pregnant too. And so this young teenage mom who's suddenly pregnant and this older woman who's pregnant, they had a pregnant woman moment together. You've seen it, right? It's always uncomfortable. (laughs) That moment lasted for months. Mary hung out there for months, perhaps as far as six months, which means just put yourself in Joseph's shoes. He's got this young fiance. She's probably 12, 13, 14 years old culturally. He's probably 18, 19, 20. Uh, His fiance-to-be leaves for six months, and if, I don't know, maybe I'm showing too many of my own cards, but I just picture Joseph as this insecure dude who suddenly feels rejected and dejected that his fiance-to-be could even exist without him for six months, and he wonders it's a major shot to his ego. She leaves this fit, trim, 13-year-old girl and returns, what? With a bulge. And suddenly he's like, what? In the like, All of my worst fears have just become realized in seeing you return. And she goes, no, no, it's not what you think. And he's like, yeah, sure, that's what they all say. And listen to verse 19. Because Joseph, her husband, was faithful to the law and he did not want to expose her to public disgrace, he had in mind to divorce her quietly. Now, there's an important thing I'd like to point out here, at least important in in my view, and I have the microphone. Faithful to the law, that's actually one Greek word. It's a word that is most simply translated righteous, but we don't do well with that word either because we think it means a white collar on Sunday. Righteous is a word that also shows up in Genesis 18. Now, we did a whole series from this. Let me just read it. It's speaking here of Abraham. It says, For I have chosen him, Abraham. Why would you choose Abraham? So that he will direct his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord. How do I do that? By going to church. No, no. Listen to what he says. By doing what is right and just. Same word. When the text says Joseph was right, was righteous, what he's saying is Joseph was a man who wanted to do what was right and just. The word here means that he had power, that he understood God made him with power, and he understood that God wanted him to use his power in a way that did right by God and others. And so Joseph is going, how do I do this? He seems to respect Mary. He seems to understand this is wild and weird. He seems to know that if he says, no, 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 I can't marry you, she's going to be a prostitute for the rest of her life. Now, we don't have any historical record of women getting killed in this instance. That seems to be a bit of a hyperbole, but nonetheless, he's trying to figure out what to do because he's trying to do right by God, but at the same time, he's trying to do right by this woman whom he loves. And look at verse 20. But after he had considered this, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream. 
Now, I don't know about you, but I find it appropriate that God offered further assistance by way of insight and wisdom after Joseph started asking questions. After Joseph, I'm not a hunter, but I picture two elk, just horns locked. I don't know, are they horns or antlers? What are those things? I'm not even sure. Locked up in this epic battle of struggle. Joseph engaged God like, what is right in this instance? And then God showed up. We don't know how long the expanse of time was. We don't know how many sleepless nights Joseph had. We don't know how long this took because life doesn't always happen as fast as we think that it ought to, does it? Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary home as your wife because what's conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. Now, I find it appropriate as well that, that what the angel identifies as the chief impetus to Joseph's trust is fear, don't you? Listen, if you're struggling, when you struggle between give and take, it's take and give. It's like taking's predictable, isn't it? You're in control when you take. Like when you go to leave here, like if you just choose to like kind of barge out the door and drive out of the parking lot, you're in control of that. If you wait, you don't know how long you'll be there. Joseph is, it's like, Joseph, just trust me on this. I know this doesn't make sense, but just trust me here. Interesting, isn't it, that he has, to, he has to deal with Joseph's fear if Joseph is going to move off of dead center. And the text continues, she will give birth to a son, and you're to give him the name Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. Notice there's an invitation. This is a God who is like, Joseph, there is something awesome that's about to happen. Could I challenge you? to come at this from a giving perspective. I know you grew up with all these dreams of how your life was going to go and how your family was going to go, and this wasn't part of it. Raising a momser wasn't part of the equation, or at least a supposed one. But if you'll just trust me, if you just turn the ship towards give, there's some neat things that are about to happen. In fact, I'm doing it with or without you. You can choose whether or not to, to get on board. Verse 24, when Joseph woke up, he did what the angel of the Lord commanded him and took Mary home as his wife. What if Joseph is a picture of a guy who's no different than you and I, who really struggles, he comes to these intersections kind of like a maze, and taking makes a lot of sense, and he can control it, and he can see it, and giving is scary, and it leaves him vulnerable. What if Joseph is a guy who who was mentored under a giver? What what if Christmas is this reminder that, that giving wins? That it doesn't always look like it? Listen, At the end of both Jesus and Herod's life, Jesus looked like the loser and Herod looked like the winner. But it turns out 2,000 years later, we're not here to celebrate Herod. What if Christmas is this reminder that, that giving wins, that choosing to live that way, it in the end wins? What if Christmas is this reminder that the greatest giver to ever live, Jesus of Nazareth, you know, the the guy who had the best jump shot ever, the best right-handed hitter ever, the the best guitarist ever, the best thinker ever, the best longboarder ever, whatever that looks like for you, however you're defining the best, Jesus, what if Christmas, the story is the greatest giver to ever live is looking to teach other people how to live the same way. See, it strikes me that lost in all the religious language, Christian and Christ follower and disciple and apostle, all these words, all these structures What's lost in all of that is that the message of Jesus is that giving wins and this God came searching for people to teach how to share his disposition in life. 
This God is looking for apprentices. He's not looking for people who were predisposed that way. He's looking for people who understand that life works best when we live from a giving, bent, bias perspective. And he's going, I'm, I'm looking, anybody, anybody want to apprentice under me? What if Christmas reminds us that, that this God doesn't just tell us to conjure it, but that somehow, supernaturally, when, when we embrace that historical moment, those moments, the cross, the resurrection, this God changes us from the inside out and then apprentices us in living this way. See, here's what I know about you and I, and we all have it in common, is in the next moments, someone will answer a cell phone. <laughs> Happened to all of us. Here's what I know is we're all going to come up to this intersection several times before the day is over, and we will choose... What are we going to do? What if, what if Christmas is this reminder that in this world there are givers and there are takers and we get to choose which we will be? I'd, I'd like to pray. Jesus, uh, it still feels trite uh, that, that if it's all historical, if it's all true, if it all happened, if it all means what it does, it seems it's, it's just hard to not drive on by. Jesus, thanks that, that you won. Thanks, God, that, that you have this way of telling a story. And while it's far from perfect and never uses perfect people, it, it always has this bias for, for people who want to learn how to be givers. Lord, I pray for marriages. I pray for office places. I pray for the relationships between parents and kids. I pray, pray for friendships. I, I pray for this community that that you would continue to draw people to yourself who, who care to learn how to live from that giving perspective. Amen. If you would like to engage further with Narrate Church, you can find contact information online, www.narratechurch.org. We would love to hear from you.